everyone, and welcome to the Forecast Fest. We're so glad you could join us once again. I'm Kate Baldwin, here with my colleagues John Avlon. Hello there. And Harry Enton. Shalom. Today, in the wake of the two mass shootings in El Paso, Texas, and Dayton, Ohio, a lot of people are throwing around a lot of different data about what needs to be done and what Americans want to see done when it comes to guns and gun safety measures. We're going to deep dive into the data behind the gun debate. And it was before, and it surely is now going to be a major part of the 2020 election. And that's not just in the presidential race, but in the House as well. And finally, we hear this every election cycle. Democrats have a real chance of flipping Texas. So let's put the rumors to rest and address the actual likelihood that Texas could be in play for the Democrats. But before we do any of that, we have to get the latest forecast, not because we have to, because we want to. Isn't that nice? Harry, where do things stand? Sure. So, you know, Chris, Eliza, and I come out with our power rankings every few weeks. So basically, after last week's debate, I think that there are a few major shifts. I'll just go quickly over the top five one more time just so that everyone can reacquaintance themselves with it. Biden's obviously number one. Uh, a big flip that we'll get into is Warren has jumped ahead of Harris. She's now number two. Harris is number three. Sanders is four. And fifth is Pete Buttigieg, as it was last week. One other flip uh, we had was uh, nine and eight flipped. Uh, Castro jumped from nine to eight, while O'Rourke dropped from eight to nine. Um, but for the most part, it's static, 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 steady, 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 with Biden still out in front. Are there any surprises here? I think it's significant that Warren jumped ahead of Harris. Harris had a really strong first debate. She seemed to kind of fade in the second. That may account for some of this. Um, I'll be interested to see next week's forecast to see whether Beto continues to be at the bottom Mm -hmm. or whether the renewed focus on him in the wake of El Paso gives him a bit of a bump because he's been a real voice calling out people who've been unwilling to call the president racist, defending and rallying around his hometown. Um, It's a circumstance you don't want to see, but it's brought attention and I think energy back to his candidacy. That's a really good point, because I think, uh, remarkably, a lot has happened. A lot happened in the debates, but a lot has happened post-debate. I think a lot has happened post-debate, you know, and one of the things that we didn't see from O'Rourke during those debates was what I would call enthusiasm, energy, a purpose, a purpose to his campaign. There was a real purpose. You know, part of the reason we flipped Castro and O'Rourke was that Castro seemed to have purpose, right? He had purpose during the immigration debate. And I think it's important to point out, you know, there are two um, people from Texas who are running for this presidential nomination. It's not just O'Rourke, it's Castro as well. But obviously, because the shootings occurred in El Paso, um, they've played a little bit more into O'Rourke's wheelhouse insofar as it was his hometown. And yeah. it was very clear from the conversations that were being had with him that he felt very passionately about this issue and seemed to perhaps find purpose again. Now, just because you find purpose, it doesn't necessarily mean that the voters will respond to your enthusiasm or your energy, um, but it certainly does give him, say, a fourth or fifth fifth chance at the apple. Um, bite, perhaps, a, is the word you're a, looking for. A bite at the apple uh, in a way that perhaps this time around would be more fortunate for his campaign. Just in the, looking at the post-debate polls that we have seen, um, Biden's still leading very clearly. Why do you have such beef, Harry, with this whole Biden electability thing? Please explain to me and everyone. So we were having this conversation in our email beforehand, what we would cover. And, you know, you guys of, should want to be on these emails because yeah, Harry speaks in code. <laughs> and John and I tried to decipher. Keep going. Certain Dash line. <laughs> um, and, and, what, you know, a lot of people have been saying, you know, Joe Biden, if you ask Democratic primary voters or potential Democratic primary voters, who do you think is the most electable? They will overwhelm 
overwhelmingly say Biden, right? And electability mm-hmm. is higher up on the chain. So then people make the connection and will say, oh, well, you know, uh, voters are just playing pundits, right? And uh, if they were actually going with their real choice of who they actually wanted, then the person leading on policy plans, who is Warren, who, you know, if you ask voters who is number one on policy, they'll say that they believe she is the best. But here's the whole thing. You're not voting for a policy playbook when you're voting for who the president should be. You're voting for the leader of the free world. And Quinnipiac University, who has been asking this battery of questions, also asks, who do you think the best leader will be? And time in and time out, the candidate who leads on that issue is, in fact, Biden. So I do think electability is playing part of this, right? I think it certainly gives a boost to his campaign. But it's also the fact that voters can see him as the next president of the United States, possibly in part because he was the former vice president of the United States. Does this then just expose like a disconnect between polls and these debate performances? Um, I think it does. I mean, I think it does indicate that the, the, the debate performances are interesting bits of information, but so far Biden has been buoyant. He is not, you know, he may dip a little bit, but he rises back mm-hmm. up. And I think it is, t- to Harry's point, electability and leadership are connected in people's minds. This is not like a completely cold-blooded, cynical calculus. It's who can you see winning an election and leading the nation. And uh, that is not an esoteric academic concern. That's actually what the election's about, if you care about winning. If you want to have an ideological debate society, that's a totally different calculus. You can clearly see that John Avalon would like to be part of that. Not at all. We we can all be part of a debate society. Wouldn't that be nice? Uh, Just a a few other things. You know, all the post-debate polls had Warren winning the debate, right? Right. But remember, in the 2016 Republican primary, not in a single debate did Trump come ahead as the one who won the debate in any of them. That's a good point. And he won won the nomination. So that disconnect to me isn't too surprising. One other thing I just point out, Harris has got some major issues. Um, You know, she dropped down to single digits in that Quinnipiac University. And I will say again, another disconnect. People did not didn't say she had her bestest, bestest debate performance, but they didn't see she had a horrible debate performance. Someone else who had a great debate performance, according to everyone who was reviewing it afterwards, was Cory Booker. And he saw no significant change in his polling. That that's, continues to be interesting to me. I mean, you saw that also with some of the other folks who people said a very strong debate. Gillibrand, I mean, statistically, nowheresville. Yeah. Um, but, but Cory Booker continues to be one of the real questions about this this overall political field because he's somebody who had a great debate performance, someone who's been front had one of the first gun uh, plans of any of the mm-hmm. uh, of the candidates, someone who's a very good retail politician, someone who's a very good order, um, and yet he's so far had trouble gaining real traction. I still would not count him out. I think that's a big mistake, but it's striking to me that he, of all those other cats, didn't see a bump in the wake of the debate. All right, now to the issue that is front and center once again, guns in America. 31 people dead in a weekend of two mass shootings, El Paso, Texas, Dayton, Ohio. And this is a, I said this on TV, and I mean it over and over again, because people should remember this as the framing. This is a uniquely American tragedy that we are seeing play out once again. And again, demands have followed of, quote unquote, do something to the leaders of the country. There are so many facts and figures and data points that politicians use to support whichever position that they take on this. It is important we all agree, to try to cut through it and make some sense of where the data actually stands. So let's start by grounding this discussion in the data. Harry, what do you know and see about how Americans feel about the issue of guns and gun control right now? You know, one thing that is for sure is there are a few sort of proposals that definitely have universal support, whether or not you're a Democrat or Republican. I think, you know, no no matter what poll you look at, background checks 
are big. Universal background checks. Um, Democrats, Republicans, 75 percent plus all agree. You know, boring gun purchases by people on the federal no-fly or watch list, 85 percent, both Democrats, Republicans. But then it starts to get a little bit shady after that. And this is part of what, you know, sort of occurs. You know, do you want an assault weapons ban? Depending on which poll you look at, you'll either find a majority of support, which is what a Maris poll found this year, or you'll actually find only a, mar- a minority support in a Gallup poll last year. And Democrats and Republicans are very split on that. But, you know, in, in the Pew survey, which I think is part of the data you're looking at, you've got a you've got a reasonably large partisan gap, but still 50 percent of Republicans support an assault weapons ban. They, they, right. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the devil's in the details on this stuff. But again, there's no reason this should be mission impossible. Twenty five years ago, we did pass an assault weapons ban. Um, and it was a tough political fight that Bill Clinton shepherded. A lot of Democrats lost their seats in mm-hmm. part because of that vote. But they and just won. for a point of reality check, it's, that did not that was not a slippery slope that led to everyone having their guns taken away. I say this because I I am a gun owner. I grew up hunting. Shotguns have been in my house since I was a child. Like there is a way to support the Second Amendment and also support. The, the two actually have not having assault weapons on the streets. Nothing to do with each other. I yes. mean, I love going shooting, yeah. um, hunting, self defense. Weapons of war are what we're talking about here. And that assault weapons ban was put in for 10 years. It expired at the end of the 10. Um, but you know what? It had still had two-thirds of the American people supporting it. And that initial vote, um, there were over 40 uh, House Republic, uh, Republicans who supported it, including Bob Michael, the leader of the House Republicans at the time. Uh, Henry Hyde voted it out of committee when he became convinced with Dianne Feinstein. And, you know, so over and over again, you know, tough vote. It passed. It was effective. Um, there's no such thing as a foolproof plan. Right. But uh, right now, if you look at the things the Democratic field utterly agrees about, background checks, number one, high capacity of magazines, two, and assault weapons is something that's close to a consensus in the Democratic field. Republicans, nowhere th- near th- that. This is why I'm so confused, though. There are there, th- You can't get 85 percent of the country to agree on, on peanut butter and, or jelly. And if that is the case and there is there is a problem in this country why not try it? Like, why not try? And that's why I don't understand why lawmakers still aren't there. Well, I I would say a few things. Number one, you know, specific gun control measures pull better than the general idea of gun control. Why is that? I'm not not exactly sure why. John's raising his hand, by the way. John has a thing, but, you know, I'll give you an example, right? Last year, which is more important? Pew asks this all the time. Is it, you know, to control gun ownership or to protect essentially the right to gun ownership? And what you see is basically an even split among Americans. 52% say controlling gun ownership, while 44% basically protecting the right to have a gun. That's a much closer split than a lot of the other things we've looked at. The partisan split is absolutely huge on the issue, with 77% of Democrats saying that we should control gun ownership, while 76% of Republicans saying gun ownership is so, more important. So it's just important. like a word game problem? Yes. I think in part it's a word game problem, but it's rooted in culture. The word co- the control is not going to lead a lot of folks to you know, find common ground. Uh, second thing is, look, like many things in our politics, it's not a red state, blue state. It's not even ideological. It's urban, rural. People use guns mm-hmm. differently in urban communities and rural communities. It's a cultural signifier when you're talking about guns separately. And it hasn't been helped by a lot of rhetoric about government coming to take your guns and how, you know, the, the polls had all their guns registered and taken away and look what happened there. So it's tied up in questions of self-defense and national defense. But when you talk to people about particulars, even Justice Scalia said reasonable gun control was absolutely consistent with the Second Amendment. So we've been having a fictitious debate. You want to know why it hasn't passed? <laughs> One name, three letters, Mitch McConnell, the NRA. Fear of the NRA. After Sandy Hook, 
universal background checks with astronomical support didn't pass. And so people in the wake of that threw up their hands. But, it, but the culture is changing. And, yeah. and grassroots groups that are for gun safety, gun control, whatever you want to call them, they, are not, they have money behind them. They, have, they, are out, they outspent the NRA in 2018. Let me ask you guys, this is something that I've been pondering, and you can tell me if, I'm, if, if this is kind of unfounded or not. I, I, I have been thinking about the role that redistricting has impacted, how that impacts this discussion in terms of like the reality on Capitol Hill, right? Just take 2018 midterm elections. Swing districts where moderate Republicans held the seat, they lost in large part to Democrats. So now, if you're looking at the Republican caucus in the House, it is whiter and more rural than it ever has been before. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, that, that to me does not sound like a recipe of any chance of Republicans then coming on board when you talk about an urban versus rural conversation here of them being any more, any more willing to jump on board, even if poll numbers say the so, other So take a look at this. I also broke down that Pew poll by urban versus rural versus yeah. suburban. What we found was that among urban residents controlling gun ownership, 63% said that was more important than essentially protecting the right to gun ownership versus in rural areas, protecting the right to gun ownership, 65% said that was more important. That is a huge split. Part of that is certainly being driven by the Parsons, but, but as John was pointing out, we saw a similar split between urban and rural areas back during the 94 gun debate. It just so happened that there were a lot more Republicans representing those suburban areas. And one last thing that I'll point out, as you were mentioning it, in 2018, Michael Bloomberg's gun control group spent a lot of money in a lot of places and was responsible for a number of seats being flipped, not the least of which in Oklahoma City with Kendra Horn surprising a lot of folks. And, and places like the 1st District of South Carolina, where my folks live, got a Democratic rep outside of Charleston. Look, the suburban districts moved against Republicans last time around in part as a reaction to Donald Trump. But the reason, one of the reasons you were able to get the assault weapons ban passed in 1994 was because you still had a... A, a, a moderate Republican backbone of the party. You had a center right that was alive and well, and a lot of those folks voted for it. And they didn't tend to lose their seats. It's the Democrats from uh, from more conservative districts that did. Right. Um, now that polarization redistricting, of course, it contributes to the stalemate. But as you start to see the swing districts, even in the South, the suburban districts move to Democrats. You see the Republicans are painting themselves in a corner. So they're going to have to rely on things like Mitch McConnell not allowing things to come to a vote. We're going to take a short break. And then when we come back, We've been talking a lot about the presidential race, and we're going to talk about the first forecast that we have for the 2020 election cycle in the House. And is Texas still the great white whale for the Democratic Party? That's next. As we all know, we're still over a year out from Election Day 2020, and we've been mostly covering the presidential race so far on the podcast. But let us take a break from the top of the ticket and look down ballot slightly. The House and what we should be watching over the next several months. Harry, what are you looking at? Well, I think that there are a few things, Ms. Baldwin, that I am looking at. And first off, you know, I look to history. History is a guide. It's a prologue. It doesn't necessarily mean, though, that it will always That's hold. That's John's lane. Get I'm out just, of John's I'm just, lane. I'm, I'm just in John's lane. Basking and I am in honking you that singing from my hymnal, baby. I, I love it. I am honking that horn, baby, in my American-made Chevrolet. 
Um, so, you know, I went back since the House expanded to 435 seats, and I essentially looked at those presidential elections in which the president was one party and the House was controlled by another party. And what I essentially found was that based upon how many seats the Republicans need to pick up, they need to pick up 18 for control. Based upon that, what I have found is that only two of 15 times has the president's party actually picked up at least 18 seats in the situation like we have going into this presidential year in which the president's party controls one branch and the House is controlled by a different party. And I even ran a statistical model on it, and what I essentially found was the chance of the House flipping, given this environment, is only one in five. And that, of course, lines up pretty well with the generic ballot, which still has the Democrats ahead by about five to ten points. So to me, just as a starting off point, I would say the Democrats are definitely favored to hold the House come 2020. I'm wondering then what kind of what kind of races are Republicans going to be running with that kind of a environment in front of them? Where there are competitive general elections, and remember that, unfortunately, because the rig system of redistricting is only a handful, some years it's 35, otherwise it's, yeah, uh, you know, 35 is the baseline, sometimes it goes up to 55, Um, they will not be running as full-throated supporters of the president. They're going to be running away from the president. Um, And you're going to see that dynamic where they're trying to hug the president in the primary and then ditch him in the general. Where I think they might find common cause with the president is it's very clear that Trump's re-election campaign is going to depend on a strategy of negative partisanship, demonizing the Democrats, saying they're too extreme, too radical, too socialist, can't be trusted. And that message, there may be some common ground because that could help some Republicans in swing districts uh, trying to appeal to swing voters. But you're going to see a president who's underwater nationally, and those key Republicans in these swing districts are not going to be hugging him tight because he's toxic to a lot of the voters they need to reach to actually win their reelection. One other thing to keep in mind as you're looking at House seats and the pressure on, on Republicans, right now you've got 11 House Republicans who've decided to retire. And I wonder if that really is a sign of the pressure they're feeling, the frustration they're feeling about their inability to call out Donald Trump in some cases, about their inability to defend Republican positions, possibly on things like guns. And we've actually seen, you know, uh, you talk about retirements. Think of two two GOP seats, Texas 22 in the Houston suburbs, Texas 24 in the Dallas suburbs. These used to be rock rib Republican districts. And these were districts that were based, were determined by single dist- single digits this past time around and are moving very, very quickly away from the Republican Party. And that's, those are the types of districts where Democrats have a chance to pick up a few seats, even though they have a few more vulnerable seats, given they have the majority. Again, highlighting the fact that it's actually an urban-rural divide, the suburbs moving towards the Democrats, Democrats targeting suburbs, even in the Deep South. And and that when you see a Will Hurd, um, right. only African-American member of Republican member that's of the right. House, give up his seat, generally out of frustration and really an unwillingness uh, to, to simply pay fealty to Donald Trump, which is the price of entry for Republicans in the House all too often these days, that is not a sign of strength for Republicans. So, you know, watch those particular races, the southern suburban districts. Democrats are going to try to build on the gains they made in 18. Um, But it is a sign also of, I think, the other thing we're going to be talking about a lot in the coming weeks and months, Mm -hmm. the enthusiasm gap between the parties. And Will Hurd is, I think, an important example of what Republicans are facing right now. As you mentioned, he was the lone black Republican in the House. With his retirement, that means Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina is going to be the lone black Republican in Congress, that statistic, just in and that and of, that, like that, it. like just that is mind-boggling in this in this moment. But it is the reality. Keep in mind, 
black voter support for Donald Trump at this particular point among all black voters is just 7% in an aggregate, or even 6%, excuse me, when I aggregate back the last three CNN polls. And if, you know, you were to look specifically at black Republicans, a very small, minute portion of the population, what we saw in the exit polls back in 2018 was that while Republicans were approving of Donald Trump by about a 9 to 1 margin, it was only about 2 to 1 among black Republicans. So among that small group, it's not so surprising that Will Hurd is saying, forget it, guys, I'm done. And I want to make sure I'm not, I'm not reading the landscape incorrectly. You guys tell me. What we've seen in just like the last, I think it was like the span of two weeks, is we had nine Republicans announcing they're going to be retiring. They will not be seeking re-election. And overall, I think there have only been two Democrats who say, three Democrats who right. are saying that they are not going to be seeking re-election. Yeah. Does that offer this is maybe counterintuitive. Does that offer Republicans any opportunity if you have? I would. I think no. I think, you know, incumbents have a better chance of winning in general. But you tell me. It, it, it's not just that incumbents have a slightly better chance of winning. It's that the Republican primaries have been putting up some of the least competitive candidates for these swing districts right. because the primaries are sort of relatively low turnout, dominated by the more extreme candidates. So they're not putting up in general the most competitive candidates. That's a function of the polarization that bo- that's afflicting both parties. But it doesn't put Republicans in a position of strength. I would just end by saying essentially that, look, you know, we haven't had a lot of special elections, but you recall, you know, leading up into 2018, the Democrats were running roughshod over the Republicans. That gap is not nearly as much uh, evident, at least in the uh, state special elections we've had so far, but still Democrats are running ahead of their baseline. Yeah, state specials are, are weird. Yes, it's a I, weird I thing. I, I, I don't think that there, there is the uh, as strong a connection, but I'm look, look, John, I'm trying to find the bright side. For I'm, the just, I'm just keeping here. you honest, man. You're keeping me honest. Facts first. So CNN. many brands being mishmashed together. <laughs> and and I can't even handle it. Cadillac, I think, or Chevy. Oh, and, Chevy. and he was promoting Chevy. Chevy. Like a rock. We don't have any sponsors. We no, just want to, to make be that clear. clear. But I am a Bob, Bob Seger fan. Okay, please stop. Okay, <laughs> so we were talking about Will Herb. We were talking about Texas a little earlier. So let's zero in on that state. Anyone who has been plugged into politics over the last few election cycles has no doubt heard Texas is going blue, and if Texas isn't blue, it sure is purple. It's key. <laughs> it, it, that was not me. Wait, which Days and Confused reference should right. we make right now? Yeah, exactly. Be a lot um, cooler if you did. I have so many that should not be said on a podcast. Okay, then. So Texas, Sadly. as a competitive swing state, is there any reason to put stock in this projection now? You, you know what? I used to be the biggest skeptic of this. Go back and read my 2013 material before I could grow a full beard when I was employed at The Guardian. How many negative pieces did I write on Wendy Davis? A lot of them. Certainly more pieces than I could grow hairs on my chinny chin chin. But but let me say this. Too much. There has been a big shift in Texas. A lot of people were saying, well, it's the growing Latino population that will shift the state to the purple lands. But what we've seen is a massive shift in the Texas suburbs, specifically among those with a college degree. We saw it in 2016. We saw it again in 2018, where the Texas suburbs, instead of voting like a different block onto itself in the South, has started to vote more like the suburbs in the North. Let me just give you a one key nugget right here. Look, compare. Just in the last two years between the Senate race and the presidential race, the Democratic vote share In those counties in which those with a college degree make up at least 30 percent of the population of those 25 and older, O'Rourke gained on average 
four points from Hillary Clinton's vote share in those counties. Those are 20 counties. And the 234 other counties where college-educated adults made up less than 30%, he gained only a point. So we've seen this massive, massive shift in those college-educated suburbs that, in my mind, will get more into what gives Texas a real shot of being put in play. And, and, and it's worth pointing out that this is fascinating news in part because it's against the narrative of deepening polarization, red state, blue right. state, that we've been confronting, this idea that the states are hopelessly divided. If the suburbs are starting to vote more like each other, at least among college-educated folks, uh, that's a sign that there's still bridges that exist in these communities. I'll say about Texas, look, I mean, Bill Clinton worked on George McGovern's campaign in 1972. This has been a perennial fantasy. Um, but are there any of those, oh, what, what, those Obama Trump counties in there that you? Oh, that the pivot so counties, my two hundred six pivot so counties. I'm going to have to go back. I am obsessed with them. Generally, they're in the upper Midwest, <laughs> yeah, but but, um, but you know, take a look not just at what, what Beto did the last the last election, um, but the demographic shifts and 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 not for nothing, um, and it's difficult to talk about this. This has been something that. Uh, Republicans have been warning about in a conspiracy theorist manner. And you did see the El Paso shooter specifically cite this idea of, of a replacement, an invasion of Hispanics that was designed to have a political impact to move Texas towards the Democrats, which is one of the ways we can say it's white nationalist terrorism, because it's explicitly uh, political violence. In, in what he posted online. Mm-hmm. Um, so these demographic shifts are happening. They're happening organically. And if Republicans find themselves panning into corners because they're not doing what George W. Bush did when he won 40 percent of the Hispanic vote in his reelection as Texas governor. So they've been moving in the opposite direction. It's almost like a dreamland that they would get that, that kind of a vote share in the Hispanic vote yes, right now. Because Seriously. they're not trying. I mean, yeah. look at Trump's well, approval the rating. I mean, I keep obsessing over this. The 2012 autopsy report among <laughs> the RNC, I know that there is, yeah. you, 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 we should definitely laugh right now because it, their whole the whole autopsy was, we need to expand the tent. We need to reach out to Hispanics. And they have done the exact opposite. And, yep. and, and that works. That works to a degree in the upper Midwest. But now you're seeing the reverse of that in a place like Texas. Texas, where you have a look, Beto O'Rourke lost whites with a college degree. He lost them, yet despite the fact that he gained upon Clinton, who herself gained upon Obama, you're just seeing this massive. There's mm. a lot more ground that can be recovered right now. There's a lot of room to grow for Democrats among whites with a college degree in those suburbs. And Trump right now is underwater in Texas. He's underwater. His approval rating is below his disapproval rating. You saw that in the CCS. Trump's approval rating was actually higher in the CCES, which is a survey done by academics, in the state of Florida than it was in the state of Texas. Texas, my friends, if there's going to be an opportunity, you talk about driving that Latino turnout, you talk about getting those whites with a college degree on your side. Remember, Joe Biden led in a Quinnipiac University poll in Texas done earlier this year, 48 percent to 44 percent. And while the polls weren't necessarily great in a number of states in 2016, they were actually surprisingly good in Texas. Okay, so Harry, you're clearly in the. It's He's a purple. believer, baby. You're, you're, I, I, in, you're I'm in purple land. A, I'm a believer that if the Democrats win nationally, if they say win by five points nationally, Texas could be very, very close. And where are you? Are you there? I'm yet? a person whose favorite T-shirt is Willie for president, Willie Nelson. <laughs> uh, and um, I strongly think that uh, I think Democrats make a mistake if they put all their eggs in the basket of flipping Texas. Right. But it's absolutely possible, and at some point, it's going to happen. If you raise a bunch of money, you can spend it everywhere. Correct. All right, friends, that does it for us today. 
Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, please make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And while you are there, please leave us a rating or a comment. It does help new listeners find the show. You can always find us on Twitter. I'm at Kate Baldwin. I'm at John Avalon. And Harry. I'm at Forecaster Internet, both a weather and a political Very on brand. Unreliable weather forecaster, I would just say. <laughs> Special thanks to our team behind the scenes, Amy Eason, Lauren Moore, and Emma Sislowski. We'll see you back here next time on the Forecast Fest. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.